0: On today's More Than a Test, we're going local. Susana Cordova is joining us. She is the superintendent of all schools here in Colorado, where I live, and so we're talking about the initiatives that she's bringing back home to Colorado. If you're from Colorado, you've heard of Susana Cordova. You've heard of her because she was the interim and the superintendent of Denver Public Schools. She left us to head to Texas, and now she's bringing back everything she learned from Dallas to help us on a statewide level. 178 districts in Colorado, and she is over them all. Thanks for being part of this conversation. Susanna, thank you for being here. Most people won't know this because the episode will come out later, but today is the day before the Labor Day weekend, and so I'm sure people are rushing out of the office, and you're spending time with me this afternoon, and thank you so
1: much. Yeah, no, thanks. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Um, And I think we're both in Colorado right now. Are you
1: in Colorado? I am. I'm in my desk across from the Capitol.
0: Okay, I'm not at my desk. I'm actually in my favorite part of Colorado. I'm in Crested Butte. Do you have a favorite part of Colorado?
1: Oh, you know, whenever anybody asks me where I want a vacation, it's always in Colorado because I feel like we're so lucky to have lived in a place like this. Um, So like, you know, Breckenridge, Winter Park, beautiful places to hang out summer and winter.
0: Those are really great places. Um, So for anyone who doesn't know, you are the new state superintendent for the state of Colorado. And Colorado is a little bit different because this position is not governor appointed,
1: right? That's correct, yep. so However,
0: was, go ahead, tell me. I
1: was selected by the um, the State Board of Education, a nine-member state board.
0: And I'll be honest, so I've read a bunch of articles about this and I've listened, and it sounds like it was a resounding yes from that board about how excited they are for you to be back in Colorado and serving as a state uh, in this in this larger role. Is that how it felt to you in that process?
1: You know, it was incredibly um, both, like, gratifying and humbling to come back to Colorado. Um, You know, I spent my entire professional career um, until I left Colorado in the same school district. And so I have very, very deep roots um, here in Colorado. was gone for three years, and it just felt like the biggest, warmest, welcome home hug that you could possibly imagine. And it's just been really great.
0: Well, and that is really magical and and deserved first of all as someone who has also worked in denver public schools and in schools in colorado like everyone is thrilled to have you back but when you left it was rough in denver public schools and you're coming back and it is rough in denver public schools for the people who are not from colorado um just a lot of contention on the board there a lot of news articles a lot of fighting so um are you nervous at all at where denver public schools is or is your job pretty removed now from from what's happening there
1: Well, you know, I live in Denver, um, and so obviously I think the success of the Denver Public Schools is essential to the success of Denver, um, and Denver is a critical player in the state. Uh, The Denver Public Schools accounts for about 10% of the students in Colorado, and so it is, you know, my most um, fervent hope that Denver does really well um, for its students because it makes such a big difference for kids.
0: So it's interesting because, you know, you talk about how Denver is 10% of the the student population. And then before that, you were mentioning Breckenridge and I'm up in Crested Butte. And I don't think most people realize, I think they hear Colorado and they think about Denver, that Colorado is really split. It is, there's urban for sure. And then there is incredibly rural. How do you lead in a place like that where where really and truly parts of the state are so different from one another? Yeah.
1: um, And actually there are far more rural districts in Colorado then there are mid midsize or large districts. Uh, we have 178 districts um, in the state of Colorado, and the vast majority are um, rural districts. Uh, and I think you know it's really important that we're thinking about how uh, we can implement policy in a way that takes into consideration, you know, what does it look like in a, in a big city that maybe has um, lots of the big city concerns uh, around poverty and um, English learners and things like that, but also, you know, in Buena Vista, where it's a very small district and it's a very different um, proposition to think about how do you bring newcomers into a very small district than it is in a large district. And we've got to be able to support both of those scenarios.
0: I wasn't aware we had 178 districts. I know a lot of the bigger ones and a few of the smaller ones. I was uh, in fair play today at one of their schools, so um, I'm surprised to hear at that about that huge difference. Um, so 178 schools, and the results just came out that last year's scores weren't weren't great, um, and that we did not see the the COVID recovery we were hoping for in Colorado. So when you think about your what what your plan is and your initiatives and like your like list of things to do this year. What's, what's, what's hitting the top?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we're, we're seeing, you know, like a little bit up, a little bit down, a lot sort of right in that same place, um, better movement in math than we are in language arts. That's probably because we saw such dramatic declines, uh, in math. Um, and so, you know we we need to see that movement inching up. Uh, that's really important. But what I would say is I think it's so critical that we are continuing to invest in the best practices we know make a difference. And so that's you know what I'm calling evergreen priorities. Like we've got evergreen priorities. They're never going to go away. They're not necessarily the kind of things that you think about strategic plans around, but it's like we need to have rock solid supports for strong foundations. You know how kids get started is critical to how well they do later, um, and so I would call that an evergreen priority. We need to do everything that we can to build the strongest and most effective um, educator workforce, um, and that has really taken a hit um, during since COVID. Um, the teacher shortages are really tough. Colorado's become, especially in metro areas, a much more expensive place to live, and. Teachers have more options, um, and so it's been hard to keep our teachers. We need to keep our teachers engaged. So I think that's um, going to be something that's really important
0: to do. I think every time I read those lists of like teacher pay, Colorado's down on the list. Like we're definitely like below thirty for sure in the states, right? Um, what what does that look like when you're trying to think of it from a state level? You know, teacher shortages. Is that the number one concern? Is teacher shortages? That's what we keep hearing across the country. Is that the number one concern in Colorado?
1: Uh, You know, I would definitely say like retaining our teacher workforce, our educator workforce is a a very high priority. And then I would say um, I would put all of the work that we need to do to close gaps. I mean, we've got gaps in some places that are 46 point gaps between English learners and native English speakers. Like we just, we're never going to be able to create the kind of workforce for the future if we're not closing those gaps.
0: That makes sense. Okay. So it's the gaps and then it's also teachers. Yeah. And yeah. when you think about your role, so you were you have been a deputy superintendent, superintendent in Denver Public Schools and in Dallas ISD, yeah. and now you're over the state. When you think about the difference in those kinds of roles, what is the biggest difference? What's the biggest difference yeah. in your responsibilities and priorities?
1: Yeah. So I'm just finishing my ninth week um, as the commissioner. <laughs> so you have all I, the answers. <laughs> so like part of what I say I have really been spending my own learning on is like, What is my job? What is not my job? (laughs) And, you know, it's a really different job than being a superintendent. Like, as a superintendent, there's a lot that you can immediately think about, like, how do you implement? And from our seat at the state, it's much more how do you support? How do you highlight best practices that are happening? How do you showcase great work? You know, Colorado is a local control state. Um, And so it's very different. You know, I'm not hiring coaches who go out and coach people on, you know, the science of reading. We create modules, we create training, and then we really want to be able to showcase, like, where are the places that are beating the odds? Um, How can we learn from those? How can those districts be mentor districts to others? And then how do we use our state resources to help accelerate the kind of change we know is going to be so critical?
0: I feel like you're saying it's a little slower paced. Is that true? Uh,
1: um, I don't know that it's slower paced. It's a very different pace. You know, I remember... Um, Thinking about pace, like when you're in a central office support team versus in a school supervisor role, Um, you know, and I used to say like very different kinds of intensity, you know, like when you're in a school, like a crisis is like, help, somebody (laughs) passed out in the bathroom and what do we do? And then like when you're in the central office, it's like, oh no, the copies aren't ready for the principal institute what do we do you know like it's a big problem when you're not ready for the principal institute the next day but it's not the kind of big problem that it is when you're like on the front line of doing something we have you know we have a lot of work that we have to do a lot of support that we have to do a lot of work that we do um with helping create the right context for um opportunities uh, in our schools and we're not the direct implementers, and so i don't ever want to pretend like I have to do the kind of work that our state superintendents do, Um, our our district superintendents across the state. Like, they work incredibly hard under very challenging circumstances, um, and our job is really to support them as much as possible.
0: Yeah, so I I understand what you're saying, and I think that that, um, sometimes that degree of separation might make it seem like less immediate, the stress, but also not any less difficult and and it's really important that you have to figure out how to like work with all these people and to your point there are 178 districts 178 superintendents who all have different priorities and you have to meet all of their needs so that makes sense that makes sense to me that the pace isn't slower it's just a different kind of urgency yeah Yeah, that makes sense
1: i haven't experienced a legislative session yet so i think it will (laughs) become incredibly more intensive and urgent uh during the legislative session so
0: Um, So one of the things that we keep hearing, and and I'll be honest, you're the first state commissioner we've talked to, so we've had a lot of district superintendents Mm -hmm. on, and they say that the most difficult part of their job is the politics, whether it's on social media or the things that come up. Is that the truth for your role as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I would say another one of the very explicit new learnings is like, I think this job is explicitly about politics, whereas in a district, the politics are part of it, but not all of it, you know, I, I think this is very much explicitly a policy and politics um, position. And it really is about like, how do we work with legislators who are you know, voting on policy? How do we take that policy, create the rules and the regulations? How do we do that in the context of an elected statewide board? Um, for all of the politics that happen in local school boards, they're typically nonpartisan elections, you know, yeah. My state board is elected in a partisan election. Um, and um, it's just important to name and acknowledge that. But I always come at the work from, you know, how do we carve out a shared middle that is much more likely to be reflective of the common values that we have, and then talk about where we're different as opposed to starting from the edges, which I think keeps you from ever getting to some shared vision or shared goals.
0: You're kind of hitting on two things I wanted to ask you about, and you might be answering that question, but I want to ask it anyways. So I was reading from, I think it was Colorado Public Radio called the, the current um, elected board divided, but they all agreed on you. And, and so when you're coming at this, your goal is to, is to bring them to the middle or, or how else are you managing something that's considered divided?
1: Yeah. And I guess what I would say is it's less like bringing them to the middle and more like helping name where we have shared areas of focus and priority um, so that we can see as a, you know, as a, so the board can see together, like these are the places where we can be in alignment and push for the kind of, you know, um, enabling conditions, the kind of um, solutions that are oriented towards students. Um, And I think it's really important to find that And then I think the other thing that's really important to do, because people, you know, it's a democracy. It it is intentionally designed to reflect diverse perspectives. I think that's important that we have the diversity of perspectives and that we're able to talk about where we don't agree with civility and with respect. Like, you know, when I worked in union negotiations, I used to say good people can share goals and have very different ideas about how you get there. That doesn't mean I'm bad. That doesn't mean you're bad. It just means we don't agree. And like we can agree on the goal and have different ideas. And the way we figure it out is by listening and compromising.
0: Well, every art, it's interesting that you say this, and I want you to kind of dig a little deeper on this. And I'm sure you have some, some sort of gem to tell us all. Because when I read the, the articles about you being chosen for the current position, every single one said one of your biggest assets is that in a room full of disagreement, frustration, insanity, whatever, you are always like the calmest person in the room. Is that true? And how are you achieving that?
1: Yeah. Um, like, I don't know if I'm the calmest person in the room, but like, you know, when people talk about their, like, what's your superpower, it took me a long time to realize that not everybody, like sometimes it are like what we're good at is kind of invisible to us. Like we don't actually know that everybody doesn't like, do the same thing. Right. Right. So one of, the, one of the things I feel like I just am really gifted with is the ability to listen to what people mean, even when it's not what they say. And so I really work hard at like active listening and trying to find those places of alignment. Because if all you're doing is listening to people's words, I think sometimes it's really easy, for me at least, to kind of like put up a barrier because I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say before you even say it. And so I'm not even really listening. And, you know, we're imperfect beings. We don't always say things the right way. And sometimes what we say is not exactly what we mean. And so I really try to listen both to what people say and to what they mean and to try to make those connections. Let
0: me ask you one more question. I feel like we're talking a lot about, you know, the the division. And I think it's important for people to hear because I think Colorado kind of comes off as, like, super, like, kumbaya, peaceful place. But the truth is, is, like, it can be contentious here. And especially in a role like yours, because you're serving districts with, you know, urban populations, democratic populations, all of those things, and then very rural, Lauren Bobert, you know, like, the, the exact sure. opposite end of the spectrum. And I'm just curious, like, can you build things that serve both sets of kids?
1: Oh, 100%, I believe we can. I mean, I think that, like, there's really strong evidence that um, there are places in our educational toolbox, if you will, that, like, these tools work well for all kids, right? So, and, you know, when you talk about that spectrum, I think there's as much diversity... On the left, within the left, right, and on the right, within the right, as there is between the left and the right, and yeah. so this is not sort of a. I don't think we any longer can sort of be like in the D's versus R's world. Like there is diversity across the spectrum, and Colorado, I think, really um, like showcases that uh, across that whole continuum. But you know, some of the things I think that we can really unite us, like. There's such strong evidence that the science of reading makes a difference for building those strong foundations in early literacy. Um, I think there's really strong evidence that ensuring that there is support for kids who are learning English as a second language, both through access to their native language, as well as to trained teachers um, to help them. You know, One of the things I'm really proud of, Colorado, anybody who's renewing their teaching license um, before 2025 will have to have 45 hours around culturally and linguistically diverse education. Right, You can't do a good job with kids um, without those kind of tools. I think there's a lot of evidence that those are going to be important for all educators.
0: So it sounds like for you, another like kind of thread of what's really important to you is around evidence and really like what is the research telling us and being able to listen to that. And I think that that's a really important move that we're seeing across at least elementary education in particular of this, this need to focus back on evidence and what does the research tell us. Um, I'm going to move on because I want to talk about you. But the last thing I want to ask about this role is, what's something in the last nine weeks you've you've done that you've been proud of?
1: Um, so I'm really proud of the outreach that I've been able to complete in two months. So met one on one with every member of the state board. Have reached out and met with almost all of the elected leaders in the House and Senate. Um, met with the Ed Committee. Met with two hundred and sixty plus members of the Department of Education, um, have been to like four districts. Wow. Um, You know.
0: Are you exhausted? I'm an an introvert by nature. And so I hear all of this and I'm like, oh, my God, I would need a nap nap so badly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, um,
1: I think it's really one of the things that I really missed. Um, Loved working uh, with a national nonprofit right before I came here. But I actually really craved. Uh, I'm an introvert also, but I really crave connection. connection. And so it's been really nice to just be in a place where I'm making, reconnecting with people I knew from before, but making new connections also. So that's been feeding my soul.
0: So you kind of mentioned at the beginning that you started your career in education yeah. in Denver Public Schools, correct? That's right. You were a
1: teacher. What did you teach? So I was a, initially a middle school teacher and then a high school teacher. I taught um, in the bilingual program Um, both English and Spanish as a second language, was mostly a language arts teacher. And then I was an elementary principal, and then I had a bunch of jobs in the central office um, until I was the superintendent.
0: So one of the things Julia Raphael Barrett told us was that it's easier to get into the the district office in those positions if you have high school experience. And you have middle, high, and elementary school experience. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's true?
1: Um, I... I, I, maybe sometimes I I will tell you, I think high school principal is the hardest job in a district. Really? I really do. I mean, like you have all of the same sort of like implementation challenges that you have any place. And then you have the complexity of parents. Our high schools are bigger and they tend to have much more diverse populations. You know, at the elementary level, they tend to be reflective of kind of like the little neighborhood right around them. And sometimes are more homogenous. Our high schools, because of their size, Tend to be much, much, much more diverse. Um, You know, realistically, I think you have the challenge of real um, violence in high schools in a way that you don't typically um, at the other levels. Um, And then you've got all of the parent concerns. I think high school principal is by, and then you've got, you know, like, Coverage and supervision, and that I was gonna that say, kind of you didn't even bring up the dance and the, dances rates and and the sports yes. and
0: the AP tests, and all really? of that. I think you're 100% yeah. right, and I hadn't thought about it. You know, we had uh, Maria Vasquez, the superintendent of Orange, on a few weeks yeah. ago. She, um, Orange County is the, I think, eighth or ninth largest district in the country. And to this day says the hardest job she ever had was being a K-8 principal. So not even yeah. a high school, but yeah. I think you're right. There's just so much happening in those places yeah. and so many strong needs and opinions. And so I, I think that's, I think it's great to name that. Um. So, so you, you, you went into the district office. And so one of the things that we hear a lot from superintendents is like, and then I was tapped. And so I moved up and I moved up and I moved up. Is that what it was like for you as someone kind of saw all your work and kind of it, it, it funneled you or, or how did you end up kind of, up on that top echelon area.
1: Yeah, you know, I would definitely say, um, like my favorite quote is, praise the bridge that carried you over. Um, Like none of us get to where we are by ourselves. And my experience 100% was people um, encouraging me to do things that I didn't think I could do. Um, And then the other thing that I would say, and I say this particularly for like the women who might be listening is I probably waited to take on leadership roles, um, you know, by mid-career, I kind of moved fast early career, and then kind of by mid-career, I sort of waited to take on leadership roles um, because I don't know that I was confident enough to do it. And I think if I had been a man, I would have moved up much, much, much more quickly. I don't have any regrets, um, but, but I really do try to tell people all the time. By the time I became a superintendent, I was sort of like, what was I worried about? Like I was doing so much of this already. What, what, what was I worried about, you know? I remember
0: you saying that at the WLE when you were, when you were moved from deputy superintendent to superintendent and you were like, how, how am I going to do this? And then you got there and looked around and you were like, oh, oh, I've been doing this all this time. I thought it was so different. And it's, and and I, and I know this like the back of my hand, which I think is really important to say. I think that a lot of people, women in particular are definitely afraid to, to take those risks and to feel, and to go see what's out there. Um, and so let me ask you, so who is someone who tapped you? Who's someone who was, was the bridge that carried you?
1: Yeah, um, you know, for sure, I can say at, when I was a high school teacher, um, the guy who was the principal at the high school that I worked in was one of the first people who was like, you should apply to this leadership program. Wow, and It was great because uh, it was a program that the Denver Public Schools had. I got, you know, two days a month as a release day to take classes in getting my principal's license. Um, and it made a huge difference, you know?
0: Wow, that's amazing that he saw that in you. And like, I, again, we're talking about how big high school principal, how big high schools are, and to like go and see a teacher and be like, hey, I think you'd make a great leader. That's really incredible.
1: Yeah, and part of what I would say, especially to like anybody who's younger listening is, um, you know, there were many times when I was asked to take on extra duties. And, um, I frequently said yes, less because I thought it was going to get me someplace and more because I felt like, like, this is going to be good for kids to do it. Like I always, whenever anybody asked me to teach a sixth class, I always taught the sixth class because typically it was like, we need a reading intervention class for kids who are struggling. And Mm -hmm. so then I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Like, of course, it, it makes sense to do that. Um, I don't think I understood at the time that those are the kind of things that make you stand out, that make people tap on you. Um, and, you know, I think for younger people today, it's just really important to name, like the way you make yourself stand out is by being willing to take on some of those extra things that maybe other people just wouldn't be willing to do.
0: Okay, so let me ask you about that though, because we had someone, I'm trying to remember who it was, I probably can't, but what she said was, I always took on the extra duties and never asked for the next, for the next role. And so I sat in the same chair doing all these other jobs. Did did that ever happen to you?
1: Yeah. I think that there, like there were times definitely when that happened. Um, What I will say is when I got to the next role, there was very little that I hadn't already experienced. And so like, I would say two things can be true in that. Like, um, In some ways, it's easier to learn when the stakes are lower.
0: It's not your title, so. (laughs) It's not your
1: title. And so you're taking on a stretch role. Like, Mm -hmm. I think to myself, like, I was a director in, um, maybe a director of literacy, Uh something like that, um, when we were doing school closures in Denver in the middle 2000s. Gosh. And and somehow, like, I got tapped to be the person who went to go tell a school room full of teachers. (laughs) No. that we were going to be closing their school, right? And um, I wasn't a principal supervisor. I didn't work on the school supervision team. Like, I was a director in the central office, and that would, I would say, was one of those times when I got tapped to say, hey, we need you to do this thing. And I was like, okay, I'll do this thing. It. I mean, I can tell you exactly everything that I remember about that experience, like how dry my mouth got like the worst cotton mouth I've ever had like my armpits like immediately (laughs) started sweating I'm standing in front of these people but you know what I learned it was like I learned from that experience I will never go into an audience when there's hard news to share without being prepared for what is the very worst way it could go because I went into it not really prepared for it to be the worst experience um and that experience that was Like probably in 2006, I have been able to look back to that experience. It has paid off so much in so many other experiences by having that one time. And like, if I had been the person in charge of that, I probably would have, I don't think I did a very great job at that meeting. (laughs) I probably would have owned the responsibility for it not going well. And it was a great learning experience through, you know, a failure.
0: Yeah. Well, and for you, right? Like, I'm sure what you're saying is like, when you get into hard moments, you're like, well, it could be worse. I could be back there. Right. Okay. <laughs> but, but also, you know, what, you're, what I'm sure exactly what you're saying, it wasn't your title. It wasn't your role. So I'm sure there's a lot of gratitude because everyone yeah. knows what it is, right? Yeah. Whether or not they've done it before, there's a reason no one wants to do that job. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the worst experience in that situation? Like reaction that you got from a teacher or from a room of teachers or
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I can remember, like, getting ready to go in. I was talking with the principal of the school, and she's like, oh, no, people expect this. Like, like this is not going to be a surprise. And, you know, I go in, my mouth goes dry, my armpits <laughs> are wet. I'm looking out at this room full of people. I can actually see the woman um whose name I'm not going to say out loud, but I can see her sitting there. And she, like, literally bursts into tears. Like, she bursts into tears. And, you know, I, I think back on it now, it's like, Well, of course. I mean, like you go into a room and you tell people you're not going to have a job at this place next year. And they literally had no idea that this was actually what what was going to be happening. Um, And so I just, it taught me so much, both about like how to treat people with respect and, you know, how to make sure that you've got the right next steps for people when, you know, big things, you know, people's jobs are there. It's like an enormous part of our lives. We, I don't think we can be cavalier about things
0: like that. I feel like I'm constantly telling my engineers, like, you love your job, right? Like, they love their jobs. But as a teacher, it is everything you are. You know, like, when you're a really good teacher, it is, like, your whole entire identity. And I and I think that, like, some people forget just how important and passionate that is for teachers. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate you naming that. Okay, so when I hear you talk about, you know, this experience in Denver Public Schools and all of your experience in Denver Public Schools, it's exactly what I experienced when I was a principal there, which was yeah. you have a deep love for yeah. Colorado for Denver Public Schools. But in November 2020, you decided to leave. Yeah. Tell me about that decision.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I'm incredibly grateful for all of the years that I had in Denver. I had a really hard, you know, two-year superintendency in Denver. Right. And, you know, took over immediately. We had a teacher strike. Right. Um, I had worked in the central office um, for, I don't know, 12 years at that point, you know, cut, you know, 250 jobs all out of central. So these are like looking at people who I had worked, you know, alongside and who had worked for me, you know, and cut a tremendous number of jobs. We did a lot of work to try to help people from central move into schools and many did. So I feel good about that. And um, it was a better economy. So I think there were lots of opportunities for people to move into, but you know, cut $25 million out of the budget, had a great, you know, summer and first semester and then COVID hit. And so then spent a year, you know, grappling with COVID. Um, so it was a challenging time um, in the middle of all of that, you know, the board that hired me in December by the following November was a different board. right? Um, and so it was like a really challenging time. Um, and so I have that, like you put that in a bubble. Right. And then, like, around the same time, uh, Michael Hinojosa called me from Dallas. And he was somebody that had a huge impact on me. I was in a superintendent prep program. with him, And he had asked me to come work for him in 2016. And I just, you know, I had, my kids were in school. I just couldn't do it. It was not the right time. Right. Um, and then when he called me again, it was sort of like, wow, I just passed 30 years in the retirement system. So I could actually retire. My husband's company had just just uh, opened an office in Dallas. Oh my gosh. And um, we had spent some time in Dallas, I don't know, maybe 18 months before uh, Dr. Hinojoso called me. And so it was one of those things where it was like, hey, it feels like the, like the world is pointing me toward, like, look at this opportunity. Um, and I honestly have like zero regrets um, about going to Dallas. I learned so much. Well, you know, like I worked in Denver for 31 years, like a lot of different jobs, but like one place. Um, Right. It was just, it was such a great experience to be in a different state context, in a different district context. Dallas looked a lot more like the Denver I started working in than Denver does today. Wow. Uh, You know, when I started working in Denver, it was significantly higher poverty, more kids of color, Denver's gotten wealthier. It's gotten wider, um, and so I felt like a little bit like I was back to what drew, drew me into education, and I just learned a ton, learned wow. a ton. So, what's the biggest
0: difference between Denver and Dallas? Um, Dallas is a
1: much larger city, so I, I, I would definitely say that. In terms of like the ways the district worked, at least when I like when I do a compare contrast between. Um, the way we did things while I worked in Denver, and the way we did things while I worked in Dallas—like Dallas was a very fast-paced, um, fast-oriented district. Like it was a district that worked a lot on text, and so you'd be in a meeting, and like in the meeting, like the text would go out from the meeting. Uh, like I remember, I made a suggestion one day. We were doing some work with um, new school school development. And we were trying to get, it was still, COVID was still happening. We were trying to get the word out to the community. And so I said like in the morning meeting, like, you know what would really help? It'd really help if we had a website that we could direct people to. And literally by the end of the day, we had a website. Wow. That's the kind of thing in Denver, it would have been like, let's get the people together to talk about what should be on the website and blah, blah, blah. blah. It would have been like two weeks before we had a website. It was like that day we had a website. Wow. That's incredible. How are they able to work so fast? You know, I mean, like, uh, the one thing that I'll say is you work fast um, with a lot less collaboration. So one of the things I was right. trying to think about is, like, I think in Denver we tended to over-collaborate. So it slowed things way, way, way down. Um, in Dallas, we probably under-collaborated. And so it's like, there's probably a little bit, you know, less. Maybe we don't need it by the end of the day. Right. Maybe by the end of tomorrow, you know, and just check with the teams and, you know, do all of that. So. That
0: makes sense. Okay, so tell me this: when you were in Dallas, what did you miss most about Denver?
1: Oh, this is so easy. Green chili, I miss (laughs) the most. They don't no green chili in Dallas. Um, And then now that I'm back here, I miss brisket tacos.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was gonna say Dallas. I always feel like beats all of Texas beats us on restaurants a lot. But green chili, have have you been to New Mexico? I hear that they say they have the best green chili. So I don't Uh, know. Well,
1: if you're in New Mexico, you're gonna have to have Christmas on your plate because you're gonna have to have it with red and green. So. Look, you could just fit in anywhere. That's
0: right. (laughs) Okay, so tell me this. So you have this long history um, in Denver Public Schools. You have this cool experience in Dallas that you are now bringing back. When you look at, you know, your hope for Colorado, what are the things that, like, most excite you about this next upcoming school year, let's say? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Like, the three things that I've been talking about as, like, what really matters to me and I think what we're... doing a good job on and I think we can do a great job on. It's start strong, stay engaged, leave ready. Um, and it's like all of the work, and I would say this is true for both kids and educators, right. it's like we need to bring people in with strong foundations. That's like all of the work in school that we're doing. Um, I've been really gratified. We have um, the Read Act in Colorado is our science of reading work. And, yeah. um We've created these modules. People from out of the state are requesting access to our modules. So that's really great news to start strong for our kids, but also for educators. Right. This stay engaged piece is like we need to do a lot more work to keep our kids engaged. Right. Um, and I think particularly post-COVID where we're seeing like huge issues with chronic absenteeism.
2: Really, and that
1: really starts at those middle grades that's making sure that we've got like engaging curriculum for kids um, engaging standards um, opportunities to think about like the whole child um, we, we have a, an accountability task force that's meeting right now um, and I think we need to be talking about like what are all of the different opportunities to learn um, not just in the course content areas but you know how do we keep kids engaged um, and how do we keep our teaching workforce engaged right and then leave ready the governor here has um, a priority that he calls the big blur and it's this idea of like how do we blur the lines between what happens in high school and what happens in the workforce right. um, and I think Colorado's done just really tremendous work getting more work-based learning experiences in our high schools internships apprenticeships with this very robust collaboration with the um, business community um, that I think is uh, very very impressive so
2: I think that
0: makes sense. I'm sure it re- resonates with a lot of people. I think it's a lovely tagline. What's, what's keeping you up at night for this upcoming school year? Uh,
1: the gaps for sure. Like <laughs> you, you look at that um, statewide distribution. on those Is it
0: mostly emerging multilingual students and native English speakers or are there gaps across our. That's, our, our, that's the
1: worst, um, okay. but it, it ranges between 20 and 45 points. Wow. Uh, across math language arts with. Um, black students, Latinx students, students wow. with disabilities, English learners, students who qualify for free and reduced price lunch. its So it is um,
2: all of our um, at-risk yeah, population. Like 20,
1: 20 to 40 points.
2: Gosh, that's terrifying. And
1: it is. And um, it's even more um, disheartening, I think, when you think about the impact of COVID. Like we have, we looked at... Um, how kids are doing and benchmarked it like pre-COVID to where they are now yeah. on scale scores by um, every, um, I guess it's not quartiles, but quintiles. Yeah, yeah. And um, what we're seeing is the average score in the lower quintiles are lower than they were pre-COVID. Wow. But the average score at the upper quintiles are higher than they were. Oh my God. So I think the real experience that we've seen as a nation is Post COVID, some kids actually are doing great, and yeah. in many cases, they are actually doing better than they were. And um, the most vulnerable students are not just worse off, but significantly worse off.
0: This is something we talk about at Amira all the time. Um, it's an AI reading tutor that kids read out loud to, and what we we talk about is a lot of the system, a lot of the things that we often hear teachers wanting to change. We say this is actually for the kid who needs it the most, right? Like, so like when we ask teachers to use the program every day, we're like, we also know that your kids who are gone, who are behind in reading also miss the most amount of school and will miss their Amira a day because, you know, like whatever. And you don't have time to rechange your schedule. So you've got to like change it for them. And, and a few other things that which it's really about, what we're seeing is the kids who are at the very bottom in reading are at the very bottom in everything. And we have to build every system around catching them, right? So-
1: yeah, and the other thing that I'd say, like, um, I think we need to think more expansively about how we can do that because right. if we're only depending on school time, I just don't think we'll get there. No. And, you know, uh, I think COVID is a really good example because parents who had the resources and the capacity to figure it out got their kids engaged in learning right. experiences outside of school during COVID. And so, we've got to be able to figure out, like, how do we bring, how do we democratize that experience for the most vulnerable kids in our system? How do we have, like, highest quality learning that's going on in school, but access outside of school, too? And it's like, what role can churches play? Can boys and girls clubs play? Can rec centers play? Like, how do we get that out, especially now that so many kids have to
0: it's really nice. I'm sure every teacher in Colorado and everywhere is like taking a, a sigh of relief hearing someone else say, like, it's not just the schools that have to do everything. And the schools can do a lot, right? And we have to do a lot. But it's true that their day extends beyond 3 p.m. And so how can we use those places? That makes a ton of sense.
1: Well, and especially with tools like Amira or like Zern, you know, our governor purchased licenses for all students K-8 right. um, to be doing math Um computer adaptive personalized math yeah and like the great thing about that is like they can use it anywhere once they (laughs) once they're logged in like you don't have to just do it at school right so that's where I think we need to be thinking about like how do we build the partnerships so it's happening and you know a lot of places that want to be working with kids probably couldn't afford a license and so it's like how do we make it happen that way
0: that makes sense okay so when I asked you I said what's keeping you up at night and you said the first thing is gaps and then we went kind of down this rabbit hole so tell me what what else is keeping you up at night
1: um, I, I guess like we have like complex problems, you know, I have nine task forces that came out of the legislative session last year. So that's right. a big lift. Um, and some of them are like, um, really complex issues. Um, and yeah, I think, um, the work that we're doing on assessments and accountability is probably some of the most complicated work to do. It's, um, the more we can try to like, Look at the places of agreement; the better off I think we're going to be. Because otherwise, I think we're never going to make progress on, you know, what it is we would want to include, change, um, or do uh, as a result. That
2: I
0: saw that in the, in the articles about you is that like accountability is one of the things that are coming up, and that this is really important. And I I, I read it and I kind of I was nervous because um, accountability is never popular, right? Yeah. These school performance frameworks like it doesn't matter yeah. how good they are; they're never yeah. popular. How do you feel about
1: that? Yeah, so. Um, like I'm a big believer in you gotta you gotta look at the truth and the data, right? But what you do with it is like what we should be doing with it is saying, okay, so now that we know this, how do we push more resources to these places? How do we support improvement? It's it's less about I think the labels and the ranking. It's more about like this helps us know decision making. We need to do more work.
0: That makes a lot of sense. It would be nice if it could feel like that. I just, you know, like good on you for going for it because I know that there's a lot of us who would really like to see that happen, but I'm I'm not sure I've ever felt that way with school performance frameworks yet. But I believe you could do it. Um, We are running low on time and I have five questions I ask every guest and this has been a great conversation. And again, let me just say how glad we are to have you back in Colorado. Um, How glad I am to have you back. Um, I think other than the WLE conference, the last time I saw you was at the school I was leading at yeah. the time, mm-hmm. Isabella Bird, And you came and spoke. So. Do you know the craziest thing about that day? You'll never know this, but I'll tell you. So the two schools that came to Isabella Bird that day mm-hmm. were Smith, which was yeah. my, where I started my teaching career. I came yeah. back from the Peace Corps and taught kindergarten at Smith and then Isabella Bird, where I was the principal. Yeah. So it That's was so cool fun. that they got to come together. That's fun. Although it tells you a little bit about how different Denver is because Isabella Bird and Smith look very different. Very different They're schools. five minutes from each other. But their populations, their teachers, their yeah. their classrooms. I still go to Smith quite a bit, though. It's I'm proud to say that the teachers that I taught there with, I taught there in 2008, are almost all still, like so many yeah, of them are still great. there. You would not believe how many that's have been awesome. there for that 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 period of time. It's a yeah. special place for sure. All right, our five questions. Um, the first question is. You know we call it more than a test because at Amira, we the assessment happens every day, every word, every sound a child reads. And so we think that we should be stop doing benchmark assessments, but instead daily tests to see where kids are. But every guest reads that and thinks of something different. So when you heard more than a test, what did you think? What did you think?
1: Um, more than a test that um learning is about the substance of learning, and it's more than a test.
0: That's really nice. Um, a lit moment in your life. And what I mean by a literature moment is like a moment of you in a book that is either like a happy place or a moment that changed you, something like that.
1: Uh, Yeah. So um, I remember reading um, Wuthering Heights in (laughs) high school. And it was like the first time that I realized like, oh, just because somebody is telling the story doesn't mean you, you actually should believe what they're telling you. Like I remember the narrator in Wuthering Heights is not a very reliable narrator. And it was like, I, I think one of my first like critical thinking moments that really stood out to me.
0: I love that. Um, a piece of technology that you love?
1: Oh, my phone. <laughs> Although I will say like, I'm super into artificial intelligence and like love trying out new tools and resources. All right, um, what have you
0: done with chat GBT lately?
1: Um, so I, I use ChatGPT a lot, but the one that I'm really into right now is a tool called gamma.app. Ooh, I don't know it. For any educators in the virtual room here, um, (laughs) it will help you create PowerPoints and, um, gives you an outline. Like you put in your prompt, gives you an outline, you can adjust your outline and then actually will build content in beautiful slides.
0: Really? Okay. Yes. I tried a different one for slides and it wasn't that great. So I'm going to have to try that one. That's awesome. I tried
1: beautiful AI also. And I, I just had a hard time figuring out a gamma dot app. Very easy.
0: All right, cool. Thanks for that tip. Um, the best
1: advice you ever received. Um, figure out if you want to be right or if you want to be happy.
0: And a book you think everyone should read.
1: Um, I love reading. But um, I'm going to answer this uh, less about like reading for pleasure, which is what I mostly do, and talk about a book that has been very transformational in my life. It's a book called Your Best Year Yet by Jenny Ditzler, I think is how you say her last name. And it is 10 simple questions to change your life. Um, I highly recommend it. I do it on an annual basis. I try to have like a buddy do it with me, so we can have like some accountability to go along with it. It's it's goal setting, but it's like goal setting for your life, not for your job, and so it forces you to think about all of the different roles you play.
0: I am so unsurprised that this is what you gave us because I have talked to woman after woman who is in a superintendent or something like it role who knows you and has said that something you said, some sort of book, some sort of advice has just like changed them. And I think I've heard this book from other people too. So just let me say, thank you from the people of Colorado who are excited that you're back, from me for being on the podcast, but also for all the women leading in education. It really means a lot to see you rise and also just helping so many other women. Thanks for being here today. This has been great. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.